the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black and Your Money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. I am your host for the first part of the show. It's Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you want to get your calls in there, it's 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. For the first segment of the show, I wanted to talk a little bit about some options for high-income Bay Area workers that have maxed out their 401k. And Rob and I are going to be together Thursday evening. Basically, tomorrow. If you haven't signed up, you should soon. Uh, the San Jose Airport Hotel, we're talking about very wealth strategies. What's the difference about the Bay Area is higher taxes, higher real estate values. People get sucked into different bubbles at different times, whether it's tech or real estate. So how do you be, how, how, how can you get set up to be financially prepared for real estate? Do you invest in the Bay Area or outside? How do you build tax efficient portfolios? Things like that. And so let's talk about some options for those that are out there that have maxed out your 401k, maybe you want to look for a Roth, but you're not eligible. What is that limit? So the, the next best place to go besides your 401k is a Roth IRA because you put in after-tax dollars, but it grows tax-free for the rest of your life. But there's limits. If you're single and your income, your modified adjusted gross income is under 114000 no problem. You can put in 5500 into a Roth IRA or 6500 if you're going to be 50 by the end of the year. But over $114,000 modified adjusted gross income, you start to become phased out of a Roth IRA. And it's not an immediate phase out. It's, it's, a, it's proportionate. So between 114000 and 129000 if you're single, you can do partial Roth contributions. So it's important to know that a lot of people think they hit that income, they're done. They can't do anything. If you're married, filing jointly, the phase-out starts at 181000 And by 191000 you're totally phased out. And if you notice that, it's not double the single rate. That's one of those marriage penalties out there. So if you're married this year, you might not be able to fund a Roth even though you did last year. Now, the next step is to, if you are not eligible for a Roth IRA, and you're a high-income earner, then you can do a backdoor Roth IRA. And this is kind of a 
silly thing because people should the IRS should just let everybody do it because you can still do one. You can fund a non-deductible IRA. If you open a normal IRA account, you fund it, and you're funding it with dollars that you can't deduct because you make too much income. And then you turn around and open up a Roth IRA and convert that contribution into your Roth IRA. Now, if you don't have any other IRAs, it's a tax-free event. But if you do have other IRAs or, or IRA rollovers, some of it could be taxable, but it's still a good idea to look at a backdoor Roth IRA if you haven't done that. You have to do uh, chadburton.com or newfocusfinancial.com. We've written blogs on the backdoor Roth IRA, and there's a lot of articles out there on doing that. And uh, no, right now we've got the actual show host here, Rob Black. Rob, how are you? Good. Join here and you ramble. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. It's good to to ramble with somebody else first thing in the morning, right? Yeah, you talked a little bit about a uh, conversion. Is that something you will be talking about at the seminar tomorrow night in San Jose at San Jose Airport? Yeah, definitely, because it's going to be something that if you if you are not eligible, you're, you make too much money to do a Roth IRA, which is tax-free account, which is amazing. You know, a lot of people out there try to get sold. You know, they try to sell people life insurance before they max out a Roth IRA, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so we'll talk about that. But when is it taxable and when is it not taxable? to do a backdoor Roth IRA. And then the next step is just to really build a tax-efficient regular account. So you people that they've, they've kind of built their financial um, foundation. If they're maxing out their 401k. They're putting money into a Roth IRA. They've got their you know six months of emergency reserves. It's not sitting in their checking account. It's somewhere else that's safe. Um, they've got their term life insurance. They've got their disability insurance in case they get hurt. And then they still have some extra income in a, in a high income type of a state. So the next step is to build a tax efficient regular account. Um, and what I mean by that is if, you know, just opening up a normal brokerage account, whether it's Schwab or TD Ameritrade. Um, and I like people, I was talking yesterday on the show, Rob, about layering. So total stock market indexes to start for your first $50,000. And then after that, you can look at specific indexes, like specific large cap growth, specific large cap value, small cap growth, small cap value, international talking, emerging when, markets. When and, you're talking total stock, when you're talking to total stock market index, mm-hmm. what's, what's the first one you would go with? Well, um, you can usually through your first part of investing, stick with some of the Vanguard ETFs, some of the spiders, um, iShares and total stock market like VTI is a, is a Vanguard total stock market index. And again, not a recommendation. It's just an idea that you need to research. And what it does is it buys the entire market. So if you buy just the S&P 500, you're buying the 500 largest companies in America, and it's cap-weighted. So the top um, 50 companies make up like 90% of the return of the S&P 500. So you get very little small-cap exposure. And one thing that rings true if you look at investing over the last 10, 20, and 30 years is smaller companies and a value approach tends to outperform over a longer period of time. So if you just do the S&P 500, you're not getting any small cap exposure really. Whereas if you got a total stock market index, you're going to get large cap, small cap, and mid cap. But eventually you'll want to be even more specific than that, and maybe not so broad. So you look at later on, before you even look at managed mutual funds, you can start buying, okay, I'm, I'm looking at my total stock market index and mm, it's only 5 or 6% small cap, but I want 10 or 15 because I'm an aggressive investor. 
So then you actually go out, if small cap has a big dip, which I would be looking for, um, go out and add a specific small cap index fund. Uh, so you build, the, the thing to note about that is that in your taxable accounts, the best types of indexes to hold are large cap and mid cap because they tend to be more tax efficient. Um, so once you start investing in a normal brokerage account, a normal taxable account, and you're buying large cap and mid cap there, that means you're likely going to need to add your small cap, your emerging markets, and international in your 401k. So you have to start balancing your portfolio as you know a whole, rather than I'm just rebalancing my 401k. You have you've got to balance your 401k against your taxable accounts. Okay, and the big event is tomorrow evening. It's a brand new one for you and I, so I'll be discussing some stocks, particularly Apple. It's, uh, companies like Facebook, some of the Bay Area companies that create a lot of these wealth uh, strategies that you help employ. Uh, the Bay Area is a great place to live, but super expensive buying real estate. A couple of my neighbors uh, have real estate, yes, but talking to them recently, they have no savings. They put every bit of their savings 100% into getting that real estate. So we'll talk about issues along those lines. Um, capital gains tax, uh, risk and return, getting married, being single. Uh, it should be a pretty interesting event. Anything else you want to hit real quick on it? we got about 30 cool. seconds. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you can comment on this on the next segment, but I was just talking with a client that, that, that got a, a, a duplex in, in San Francisco that would sell for $1.55 million in their net income from it is 3.2%. And so to, in order to keep up with stocks, that would have to grow at, you know, 4 to 7% per year to keep up with historical rates of return of stocks. So you got to really look at your real estate and say, it's a high income, but as a, in terms of a percentage of the value of what you could get out of it if you sold it, is it a good deal? Thanks very much. It's CFP Chad Burton. Come meet him tomorrow night, 6.30 to 9, in a new seminar called Bay Area Wealth Strategies. The San Jose Airport Hotel. You can sign up at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. For more information about him, it's newfocusfinancial.com. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Going to be doing a big event tomorrow night at the San Jose Airport Hotel, all about Bay Area wealth strategies and how we're a little bit different. There'll be a lot of practical information. There'll be a lot of information on stocks that I like and why. You can sign up for the event at Rob Black. Com. That's robblack.com. That's tomorrow night, San Jose Airport Hotel. A couple things that I want to hit on is the big Apple announcement. Uh, they got one thing right yesterday. They got the phone out there. They got the payment system out there. 
they got the watch out there. I was a little disappointed with the watch, just style-wise. Again, haven't seen one, haven't held one. Having, uh, you know, expectations and rumors for two years, I was a little disappointed. But that's okay. They got the phone right. And what you need to know about the big mega event was it was all about the phone. The iPhone line looks great, and that's really all that matters. Apple gets 53% of its revenue and 70% of its profits from the phone. As long as Apple can keep phone sales chugging, it's going to keep doing well. The iPhone line is on steroids now. The complete line with pricing on a two-year contract is huge. They've got the 5C, they've got the 5S, they got a 6 and 6 Plus. Um, so they've got a Basically, a phone for everyone, and a mid-range phone. If you want a mid-range phone, go with the you know the, the 5C. If you want a premium phone with a small screen, you go with the 5S. If you want a big phone, go with the iPhone 6. If you want a phablet, and money's no object, you go with the iPhone 6 Plus. Um, Apple isn't making cheap phones, and it's very very slightly introduced a low-cost option with the 5C, and the 5C is a really good phone. Uh, and if you put a case on your phone, you can't really tell that it's plastic anyway. So um, Apple's managed to differentiate its high-end iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus with big screens and exclusive features like Apple Pay. It's got new mobile payment system that was introduced yesterday. The iPhone 6 models also have a motion tracking chip and a fingerprint scanner that make it you know, cut above the 5C. Apple's managed to raise the price of the iPhone and the iPhone 6 Plus. This is going to help boost their sales and their margins. So they got that right. Now, Apple Pay yesterday was interesting. It's something the analysts have been looking for Apple to do for years because they have 800 million accounts that people could do transactions with. It's too early to say, you know, if it's going to work or not. If Apple's demo is close to real life, it's a game changer. It could revolutionize how people buy stuff. Apple Pay may not generate much in terms of revenue for a while, but it's out there. Um, they're going to charge banks in the new payment system. They charge fees from banks every time consumers use their iPhone to make a purchase, a move that will give the company a cut of the growing mobile payments market. Apple unveiled a watch, two larger iPhones, um, and the mobile payment system. So the new payment service comes at a time when mobile payments are expected to see steep growth, so they're getting in on that game. It's kind of cool the way uh, they explained it. You're going to take a picture of your credit card. That credit card picture will now be stored in their servers, not on your phone. Um, your code, your phone will have a unique code to it, so that if it's ever stolen, you know, no one can get into um, your accounts. It'll have two-step verification. A, it'll be your phone, and B, it'll be your fingerprint, which is pretty, you know, biometrically safer than what's currently out there. So payments is probably the second most important thing. I thought the watch kind of looked like a first-generation product, which is very unlike Apple. It seems a bit bulky, not as sleek as sexy as you would expect from Apple. The demo for the Apple Watch was a bit clumsy with Apple saying you could look at photos and maps on the watch. And why would you do that if you have a phone that you have to have regardless? Um, so it's all going to be about the apps that are developed for the uh, watch. And Apple is very much so a great brand. So an Apple watch in foreign markets in developing countries is going to be a hot item. 
Um, I'm not guessing the first version of the watch is going to be a blockbuster until people start talking about the apps. Apple very quickly refines its products by making them thinner and better. Think about the iPad Air today versus the original iPad. The iWatch isn't going to make much of a dent in Apple's business, but that's okay. The only thing that really matters, like I said, is the iPhone, and it looked great. Um, and they really do have just, they have it really figured out. Um, the most interesting off story from yesterday um, that was an Apple to me was Destiny. Um, Destiny is a new video game out by the action shooter um, group company that made Halo, uh, Bungie. And that pulled in over $500 million in revenue on its first day. That ain't too shabby. Destiny is available for PlayStation 3 and 4, Xbox 360, Xbox One. Um, Very customizable, very beautiful. And the reason I bring up $500 million is because uh, I think it's worth noting that video games pull in just as much money as a big blockbuster Disney movie. And we don't really look at video games like that at this point in time. But there are companies like Electronic Arts and Activision that are publicly traded that deserve taking a look at. Um, I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. So back to Apple. The one thing I didn't mention is how their stock started to perform after they released the phone. Um, It was kind of interesting. You know, I'm one of those people who watch the tick by ticks only because it's interesting. Uh, not because I have any, I own shares of Apple, but I wasn't really, I don't care if it goes to 110, 115, 120. I care ultimately about the margins, right? Um, and I think the iPhone, they hit it that well. And they're trying to set themselves up to get some higher margin growth with payments later, but not now, but later. Um, Apple had a big run this year. It's up 25%, so expecting it to go higher when it's a $588 billion company um, is a little unreasonable. But um, yesterday it was 100, 101, 100, 200, 304. And the moment they they showed the iWatch, it starts to dip slightly right after that. Uh, I just wasn't all that. Again, to me, it looks like a first-generation product, right? So tonight, President Barack Obama is going to talk about starting a war with ISIS in Syria. And we're talking about drones and unmanned aircraft. Northrop Grumman is the best unmanned aircraft play out there, uh, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, some of the war stocks are going to do well. Just throwing that out there. I'm Rob Black. You can find me online at robblack.com. You can sign up for an event tomorrow night in San Jose at the San Jose Airport Hotel at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. I know what you're trying to say, baby. You're trying to say, oh, yeah, it's business time.
Oh, if you're hearing that song, it must mean Dr. Jeff Rosen. Chief Economist Briefing.com's out there. Mr. Rosen, how are you? Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm good. Something interesting happened yesterday. Apple wasn't doing their announcements. You saw a little up market, a little down market, a market in a plunge. It seems that that plunge is coming from a Fed research paper that was released on Monday. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I mean, it's what we've seen in the past. You had a paper that looked at, you know, basically the Fed futures market, and you had a uh, comparison of what the market expectations are based on the futures market and what the Fed's been saying in their uh, FOMC projections. And there's been a mismatch where the Fed has been predicting rising rates sooner and faster than what the uh, the market's implying. So it, it kind of spooked the the equity market in part because you know here's in black and white that the market's lagging the Fed in terms of uh, you know rate expectations. That is kind of important because it changes the flow of money, the changes of safe money, things along those lines. Do you think this Fed paper has credibility, or is it just one kind of like trial balloon outlier per se? Well, I mean, the Fed's papers got credibility in the fact that, you know, this is what the Fed is saying and this is what the market is saying. You know, those two are, in fact, you know, not synced up. The question is, is what the Fed's saying more accurate in terms of a forecast than what the market is saying? You know, and I would argue that the Fed's forecasts have been uh, much more optimistic than actual uh, economic growth rates. So the market is discounting the Fed's forecast and saying, look, the Fed may be expecting uh, economic conditions to warrant an increase, but that's based on inflated economic projections that we just don't believe. So therefore, we're going to hold back on our forecast of a rate hike until later in the year. So if you believe that's true, then the market is, is correct. You know, we're not going to see rate hike until later than what the Fed is currently projecting. If you believe the Fed's forecasts are going to be accurate, then the market is, you know, behind the curve, so to speak. The ECB's decision to introduce more stimulus. How long will it take the ECB to get to where the United States is, in your guesstimations, as far as ending stimulus and getting trying to get things to normal, even though we're not at normal yet? Well, they're going in the opposite direction, and for good reason. Their economic growth rates are are dismal. Their uh, inflation prospects are even worse. I mean, deflation in a lot of areas of uh, the eurozone is a very big reality. So I, I don't see them normalizing where they would start to need to increase rates for some time. I think that they're going to need to do some type of uh, – bigger quantitative easing uh, type mechanism, and, and I don't know what that'll be. You know, the ECB is hampered by the fact that you know each member country has different fiscal and structural problems, and it's very difficult to get every country within the Eurozone on board of doing things that need to be done. I mean, you're not going to see uh, Germany anytime soon running a tra- uh, running a, a trade deficit, which is what needs to happen. You're not going to see uh, structural reforms in the employment sector to increase productivity in France, you know, right away. You know, and but you're going to hear you know French politicians saying you know 
Germany needs to go out and spend more. They need to save less and, and increase consumption and in, increase spending. And, you know, you're going to hear the Germans say at the same time, the French need to, you know, figure out ways of eliminating uh, some of these guarantees and employment contracts to free up uh, potential capital and free up uh, labor productivity. So as long as you have those two sides, and, and this is not just France and Germany we're talking about, this is every country in, in the Eurozone arguing amongst themselves, you know, the bank is going to have a difficult time uh, you know, combating those problems, and they're going to do everything they can by easing, but the easing is probably going to look very much like uh, like the U.S. You're going to have probably much greater uh, you know future easing, you know, like a quantitative easing three uh, type mechanism in Europe, and uh, you know the amount of good that it's going to do is probably going to be limited anyways. You recently pieced a uh, written a, wrote a piece for Briefing.com that I loved. It's short. It's easy to digest. It was tied towards the automobile markets. Basically, I think you were kind of taking a little bit of a shot, not not negative, just saying that this could be their peak, and that may not be a good thing. Give us a little color on that piece. Well, what we've been noticing over the last several months is that auto manufacturers have increased the amount of incentives uh, that they've applied to transaction costs in order to influence buyers to come out and buy a car. So cars are, you know, priced one way, but those prices are actually, you know, the sticker price is not what you're getting. You're getting, you know, all these massive incentives, which lower profit potential. And if we're only seeing growth in demand because of these incentives, uh, it's not a good thing in the long run. Eventually, incentives have to keep going up and to keep attracting more demand, which could be a problem. Uh, you'll shrink your profit margins and you know, the car companies can't stay in business that way. Or you're going to start seeing uh, rates rising in the future because of, uh, you know, the Fed ending QE and then the Fed eventually raising rates, which makes affordability conditions even worse in the future. So the incentive model is going to be required to keep demand. And, you know, in the long run, these are bad for the motor vehicle industry. And if you cut off the incentives, that could be the end of sales growth. So th there's a lot of concern that we may not be getting um, good demand gains, you know, far off in the future. How important is the auto industry to the United States? Because for a while there, it kind of lost a lot of relevance, but it seems to be coming back. Um, lost relevance because of manufacturing overseas. Are you with me on that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you got to remember with the way an economy works is that the service sector is very stable under normal conditions. So you don't see much acceleration in growth from the service sector. So the change in GDP is a lot of that comes from the more volatile industries, which the manufacturing sector is key of. So when you have the auto sector going up and down, very violently, it has a more profound effect on quarter-over-quarter quarter GDP growth. So in that respect, the auto industry, even though it's a more minor uh, sector, it has an outweighed response in terms of growth rates. So we take into consideration how the auto sector is doing because it's a decent proxy for how GDP is going to perform. 
Anything else that you're working on, Dr. Jeff Rosen, that we should be aware of? I mean, the, the biggest thing right now is looking at the relationship between uh, employment and consumption. I mean, we, we had a, a pretty poor employment report last week. We had a, a decent gain in wages, but uh, the obviously uh, the lack of new job growth along with the, the wage gain made a relatively minor uh, aggregate income gain. And the question now is, are we going to start seeing consumption accelerate as people use more of their income to, to buy stuff, or is the savings rate going to continue to increase, meaning that employment growth has to accelerate much faster than what we currently are seeing if we're going to have uh, consumption growth in the future. And consumption growth is key to economic prosperity in the U.S., and, and until that starts moving higher, uh, we're going to be in this kind of you know, ugly 2% type growth rates for, for a long period of time. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Jeff Rosen, Chief Economist, Briefing.com. I guess I shouldn't say thank you if we're going to be in ugly growth mode for, for a long period of time, but I think everyone knows what I'm trying to get at with that. Um, so Dr. Jeff Rosen, Chief Economist, Briefing.com. Briefing provides a lot of independent live market analysis. Um, I have him on every Wednesday, typically in the latter hour, but today we've moved him forward because we're doing a uh, that is tied directly towards you and your money uh, in the second hour of the show. Uh, you can find out more about me. I do the show from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. here on KDOW, a.m. 1220, uh, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., uh, Rob Black and Your Money. And uh, I sit in for CFP Chad Burton during his shows uh, in the latter half of the week from at noon, from 12 to 1, uh, here on a.m. 1220, KDOW. So let's talk about some of the other big stories that are out there, some of the other headlines per se. Um, the market is headline driven in the short term. I think we all kind of know that. Uh, it's more long term driven by earnings, which I don't think everyone knows that. Uh, the dollar index continues its recent surge. It's hit a recent 2013 high. This is going to be bad for big American multinational type companies as it makes their product more expensive overseas. The energy sector has extended some weakness. The president's going to go on television tonight and talk about uh, airstrikes in Syria. That should be good for the defense stocks, particularly companies like Northrop Grumman. There's an ammunitions maker. There's uh, you know defense stocks that are tied towards dividends that should be considered. Uh, but again, don't just do that because the president's given a speech. Do it because your portfolio needs it. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. We'll take a break here. Be right back. You can find me online at robblack.com. Oh, and i got a big event coming up in San Jose at the San Jose Airport Hotel tomorrow. Sign up at robblack.com.
Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Money investing in more. Strength today seen in consumer staples, healthcare, financials, and technology. Weakness in consumer discretionary, energy, industrials, and materials. It's one of those days where uh, we're going to expect a presidential announcement tonight. And uh, he seems to have the support of the Republicans and Democrats of Congress for limited airstrikes and aerial drones, i.e. I. no boots on the ground. Let's go to Michelle Lerman, lermanlaw.com, state planning attorney. How are you, Michelle? Good, Rob. Um, you're here to talk a little bit about the event tomorrow night, but also um, Joan Rivers. Give us a little color on the Joan Rivers estate plan. Uh, first of all, wow, what what a legacy she left. I don't know about you, but I was such a fan. She was a remarkable woman. She really, really was a remarkable woman. And she left quite a, a legacy for us, a legacy of what we all should be doing in our lifetime, and that is talking openly about death, which is hard to do a lot of times, right? It's not exactly a dinner conversation. Here's what I want when I die. Here's what the funeral that I want when I die, right? It's not exactly uh, what we think of when we think of getting together with family. But it's, 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 it's healthy. It's important. It is. It is. It's very, very healthy, and in fact, She, um, I hate everyone starting with me, and she shared her thoughts very, very openly. And while we all don't write books, what we all must do if you live in California is to have a health care directive. That's the name of the document that we use in California. It's called the health care directive. And in that health care directive, you pick someone to make your end-of-life decisions and in fact any healthcare decisions if you're not able to make them and you and you be very specific about what exactly you want do you want life support do you not want life support what if you're senile and do you want to be buried do you want to be cremated what type of funeral she was amazing and she really got what she wanted she wrote in her book that she did not want to linger. She didn't want to be ill for a long time. She wanted to just have everyone just wake up in the morning and they would read a headline, she says, Joan Rivers found dead. And she really, she was, she was on life support for about a week and um, she appointed her daughter to make that decision, Melissa, and Melissa took her off life support. And she died, and she even got the funeral that she wanted. That's how that's how specific she was on on what what she wanted. She wanted a, a Hollywood all the way type of uh, funeral. So she, uh, we have a lot to learn from her. With that said, uh, do you mind talking about your healthcare directive? Like, what are some of the things? What are, um, yeah. or what are some what are some of the highlights you see in a healthcare directive other than Joan Rivers? Yeah, well, I also have to tell you that who you pick is really is really incredible. My parents have been married for 63 years, and my mother says, I'm not naming my father, she's not naming her husband, my dad, for, to make her health care decisions. He's, 
she says that he'd pull the plug way too quickly. So you really have to think about about who about who to name. And in our healthcare directives, we get very specific, even with things like if you become senile and you're not able to recognize family and friends, do you want the person caring for you to encourage you to maintain your social relationships? Thanks very much. Go ahead. Some people say absolutely because even if I'm not recognizing people, it's in my soul. I'm a social person and I want that. And other people say don't bother. They're just not social people and and don't bother. Uh, other people in their healthcare directives that we prepare might say if I'm no longer able to travel, I want to spend a lot of time outdoors in a natural setting. And again, some people would say, absolutely, I don't want to be indoors and, and uh, fresh air is critical and nature is critical. And other people say, boy, I just don't want anybody to bother. So it's very customized to, to everybody's, everybody's desires and wishes. Thanks very much. It's Michelle Lerman. You can find her at LermanLaw.com, LermanLaw.com. She's an estate planner attorney. She does much, much more than that. But um, she will be at the event tomorrow night when we're talking some wealth strategies that are particular to the Bay Area. You can sign up for the event at RobBlack.com. It's RobBlack.com. It's at the San Jose Airport Hotel tomorrow evening from 6.30 to 9. It's going to be addressing financial issues that you're likely to face as a Bay Area resident. Uh, the taxes, the stock options, the capital gains, the real estate versus stocks, the risk, the risk, the risk return, uh, buying real estate in the Bay Area. She'll go over some of the big mistakes that people make in current market conditions. CFP Chad Burton will be there talking all things financial and, again, going through this Bay Area Wealth Strategy Seminar. It's a new one. You can sign up at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. Please don't be shy. Uh, sign up today, and I'd love to see you out there tomorrow. Again, the San Jose Airport Hotel. And just bringing up the whole Joan Rivers angle, again, shows you that we are all going to die. And it is important to communicate things like healthcare directives, how you want your funerals, um, where you want your money to go, when you want it to go. We'll take a break here. I'm Rob Black. and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 
1220. So call in, we'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Welcome in, Rob Black, talking all things financial, money investing, and more. Doing a little back-to-school shtick where I'm going over content that will last 10 days in one-hour formats where if you listen to all 10 hours, you'll have basically, if you're naive, you'll have you'll lost your naivety. It won't be the end-all, be-all financial primer. It's not meant to be. I'm jumping around topics pretty aggressively. For instance, a couple days of setting priorities, a couple days of, you know, making a budget and insurance issues, uh, talking, investing in stocks, bonds, and real estate. I'm really trying to, to fly around the various areas and, again, put them in easy, digestible forms that you can consume by a podcast uh, later in life. Tell your kids, hey, go grab this and listen to this. Um, things along those lines is my goal. doesn't mean I'll hit it, but it's certainly my goal. So... One area that I want to talk about is buying a home. It's part of the American dream. And I think that it could be part of the American nightmare. Um, First and foremost, your number one priority to me is funding your retirement, age 60 to 100. It's not buying a home. If buying a home is your number one priority, then your number two priority would be funding your retirement nest egg, right? But in retirement, if you have a nest egg, you could rent a place, you could live with a friend in his room. There's, there's all sorts of options. But if you don't have money in retirement, you don't have a place to live. Or maybe your house rich and cash poor, and that's not a good way to live. So, you know, these are just the, the start concepts that we get out there with. So don't buy a home if you can't stay put. If you can't commit to remaining in a place at least a few years, owning is probably not for you. Not yet, at least. With the transaction cost of buying and selling a home, you may end up losing money if you sell any sooner than, say, you know, five years. Even in a rising market, um, if it's falling, you're screwed with the fees and the costs. So don't buy if you can't stay put. It's that simple. You want to shore up your credit. Before you buy a home, you want to take a look at your credit report, see if there's any mistakes on it, start working with a mortgage lender, see what you could truly afford. But you really want First, to see your credit report, right? Um, You're going to need a mortgage to buy a house. That's why you need credit. Um, A mortgage is typically 15 or 30 years. I tend to like to go with a 30 years that I could keep funding my retirement with a full maximum, uh, 15% per year. But I could make a case for a 15 when rates are low and you're a little later in life getting married. Um, You don't want to be carrying a mortgage around in, in retirement unless you have to. My mom still has a mortgage, and my mom is pushing 80. Uh, she'll have a mortgage when she dies. It's, it's okay. She's got a pension that can easily cover that cost of living. Aim for a home you could really, really afford. So you could typically afford about two and a half times your salary. So if you're making $200,000, that means you could buy a $500,000 home. Um, there's some better you know, calculators out there other than that rule of thumb. And it depends on how much debt you have for sure. You don't want to, I mean, swimming in debt is swimming in debt, and it's stressful. I say put down anywhere between 10 to 20%. Um, 20%, you're going to get a loan. It's going to be a lot easier. 
uh, 10%, it might be a little bit more difficult. There's a variety of you know private lenders out there as well, so I'm not speaking completely of uh, hard set scientific rules. One of the areas that I am adamant about is when you buy a home, try to buy a home in a good school district, um, even if you don't have school-aged children. When it comes time to sell, you're going to find that 80% of buyers are single families. So very small amount of market is single people. Very small amount of the market are retirees who are buying homes. Um, so when it comes time to sell, a strong school district is really, really important. Now you're saying, but I can't afford a small school district. Well, then maybe you shouldn't be buying is what it comes down to. Get professional help. Um, the Internet gives you unprecedented access to home listings. Um, I have a realtor that I used that was great, and she got me into I was looking for a year and a half, and she was patient. And when the house came up that I wanted, uh, she was able to see it. She, we had been to m numerous houses. I'm like, no, 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 yes, no, no, yes. Um, put a bit on that one. No, no, no. So when the house came up that was right, she knew exactly what I was looking for. Um, she grew up in that area. She works only in that area. Um, I knew this guy who was across the bay who could probably you know, save me a little bit of money, but he didn't know what he was doing. Um, so I had to say no. I like to, when I find the home, I like to pay points. When picking a mortgage, you usually have the option of paying additional points portion of the interest that you pay at closing in exchange for a lower interest rate. If you stay in the house a long time, say three to five years or more, it's usually better to take the points. The lower interest rate will save you more in the long run. So you pay for a lower rate. It's kind of ridiculous. It feels kind of like a racket. There's a lot of things about buying a house that feels kind of like a racket. Like, okay, the realtor gets money to buy this. They get money when I sell this. They get money when I do the loan. Like, it, it, really, there's another fee? Um, one thing that I'd like to do is before bidding on a home is I like to try to live near it or try to experience it. Uh, one area that I bought many, many, many years ago, I didn't realize had just rough, brutal traffic in the morning. Uh, bottleneck traffic, kind of bad. And whoops, I probably would have changed because to me, buying a home, I want to be close to work. I want to be close to, you know, moving around. I don't want to be in bottlenecks everywhere I go. I like the home inspector angle. A home inspector requires, uh, most, lo most loans now will require uh, an appraisal, but that's the bank's way of determining what you are getting and what is good quality or not. But there's this guy that I used, uh, Skip Hicks. He's a home inspector. And he went around, took pictures of the roof. He says, brand new roof. That should last 15 plus years. You know, look, took a look at the foundation, took a look at the dishwasher, took a look at everything took pictures so I will actually hire him again uh, just to do a home inspection you know let me know what's falling apart what needs work the electrical system was in bad shape when I moved in you know I wasn't gonna get it all and fix it all at once I was gonna do it over time um, so a home inspector points out potential problems that could be costly repairs so that's worth throwing out the nice thing about home ownership is you're no longer paying rent for the roof over your head. 
you know, you're maybe paying yourself $800 principal a month or maybe a little bit more in the Bay Area. And that adds up over the year. You're like, hey, I just paid myself. Woohoo! I just paid myself $10,000 to live here this year. Um, it's a great way to accumulate wealth over time. It's a horrible liability in the short term, but over time, it's a great way. Um, typically, on should you rent or, or own, the rule of thumb is that you pay 35% or less in rent than you would be would be for owning, including the monthly mortgage, property taxes, and homeowner fees. Homeowner fees. Oh, not a big fan of the townhouse in most of America, like Sacramento or Tracy. Townhouse is okay in the San Jose's or San Francisco's, really close to jobs. It is difficult. It's more difficult to, you know, resell them. They stay on the market a little bit longer. Uh, I'm not a big fan. You always have those homeowners fees and homeowners associations. Oof. Let's just say it seems like they like spending money, my money. With home, you get to pick what you pick. Uh, with homeowners, they get to. I don't like it. I'm Rob Black, talking, buying a home. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Talking, trying to put together a series kind of back to school, which gives you kind of the ABCs of money and investing. Today's topic, or the current topic right now in this podcast slash show, buying a home. Again, I think that we've been kind of wrongly set up to think that buying a home is the best investment you've ever made. A home is not an investment, it's a liability. If you lose your ability to pay the mortgage, you lose the house, and they'll come after you. Now, it's the best investment you've ever made over time, sure, kind of, well, not really. There's a study out that studied New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, San Francisco, Areas sought to be great housing markets. It studied a 30-year period, a 30-year period where um, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, where if you had put money into the stock market, let's say you put $10,000 down on a house, put $10,000 into the stock market. Let's say you put $500 a month into your mortgage. And then you also spend a little bit of money, you know, on, Things like, um, (laughs) I'm dropping the word that I'm looking for, Um, taxes, property taxes, that's what it was. Uh, And you put that same type of money into the SP 500 fund again. So everything that you're putting into your basic needs of the home, you put into the basic stock market. In 30 years, you'd have 300, 400% as much, 400% as much as you would had in the house versus in the stock market. Stock market taxes are a lot more favorable than taxes anywhere else, especially if you're 
growing it tax-deferred and reinvesting it. So just throwing that out there, uh, it's a misnomer that real estate beats stocks. Are there periods of times where it can? Sure. Real estate and buying a home is based on a premise that someone's going to buy it from you at some point in time or that you can turn it into a rental. And one of the things that you have to look at is if you turn it into a rental, how much can you get of the home's value? You typically want at least 4 to 6%. So if it's a million-dollar home, you want somewhere between forty dollars and $60,000 a year in rent. $60,000 is, what, 5000 a month? If you're not getting that, then you're underperforming. What you could be getting if you sold the property and invested it in, you know, a good income fund or diversified income fund or, you know, in other type of assets. So the home value is important, especially when it gets turned into an, a rental. Now, one thing that I'll, I'll throw out there that I kind of like to talk about a little bit, too, is, you know, tied towards owning a home. Um it's a great way to slowly accumulate wealth, but try to buy less than you need. Uh, there's a little bit of a trend going on with that already in the first place of downsizing the McMansions. But 30-something-year-old kids now, they're living in smaller apartments, and they're kind of comfortable with it. They may not get to the point where they want a two-story, 2,500-square-foot place. They may be comfortable with a 1,600-square-foot place. Um, again, the idea is you're going to sell it to someone that wants to live there, right? So one of the areas that, you know, this comes into is if I have a million dollar home, for instance. So two and a half times my income, right? So you need a $400,000 income or you need a lot of money down to be able to afford that home. Now, I don't know a lot of people with $400,000 incomes. I don't have it. Um, I have a lot of assets, but I don't have a $400,000 income. So for the home to get to $2 million and double like the stock market's done in the last five years, for it to get to $2 million, you know, I would have to have someone have an $800,000 salary. Like, have salaries gone up in the last 10 years? No. Some salaries have, for wealthy people, for sure. Then you get into this kind of area where if the home does go up to $2 million, some of the buyers will go, well, honey, like we could buy 20 houses in the United States or we could buy 10 luxury houses in the United States and travel around the country. Um, or we could just buy, you know, 10 miles from here, a house worth, you know, 20 to 30 percent less. So you do get kind of caught in a situation. This is what realtors won't tell you and mortgage lenders won't tell you, you do radio shows and TV shows. They just say real estate always goes up, but that's just crap. It doesn't. Um, and if it does, it creates a problem. The stock market versus real estate, the stock market kind of reflects business. Um, so you kind of need business to be doing well, for people to have jobs, for people to get raises, for people to um, buy your home. So it's just something to, you know, again, try to be honest with yourself on. And I know that's difficult because I, people have that instant gratification desire much more so than they have common sense desire. When you pick a real estate agent, I always like to use people that are local in that community. Um, or you can find out who's like the highest generating agent 
and they're not bad people to go with in large part because they know people. If they're, you know, a high volume real estate agent, that probably means they know how to sell a home and they know how to get a lot of people to look at it. Um, when I go into a home, I don't fall in love with the kitchen. I'll probably hate your kitchen. When I look at a home, I'm looking for water damage on the outside of the home. I'm looking for water damage. That's my big thing. I want to see how sound the home is before I get into something that, you know, is damaged and is going to need to have new electricity because of water damage. Or it's going to need new floors because of water damage. It's going to need, you know, a new roof because water damage. So I'm looking for water damage. So learn what to look for. You know, don't fall in love with um, a home the moment you walk in. Find something that works for you. Um, try to negotiate a fair price when you're talking with a realtor. Just because they say, you know, um, their fees are, you know, 3% to buy, 3% sell. You could say, hey, how about 2.5% or 2% and um, I'll give you the deal. And sometimes they'll say sure. And sometimes they'll say no. Um, if a market, if a house has been on the market for more than six months, you probably have a lot more wiggle room to negotiate. So if you're able to find that house that's been on the market for a long time, um, you might be able to get some concessions from the seller. If it's on the market under six months, it's good luck. Uh, it depends on where interest rates are and things along those lines. And the number one thing that moves the value of your home is the price of the mortgage. As interest rates move up, and they will starting in 2015, that's expected. As interest rates move up, it should lower the value of your home because people are able to afford a lot less through the mortgage. It's just worthy of noting. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, talking real estate. Back to school, the ABCs of money, finances. Everything from making priorities. Priorities are the number one thing you got to think about. Um, I've got a friend who, you know, really, really wanted a Mini Cooper. I don't understand why, but <laughs> I understand. They're small and sporty. And, well, they're small and sporty. To the point that she put herself in a situation where it hurt her ability to fund retirement. Not a good thing. Her priorities kind of got mixed up there. So one of the issues that I want to talk about is debt. Americans are loaded with credit card debt. This is another lesson. Give me my tones. Students, today's lesson, controlling your personal debt. Americans are loaded with credit card debt, loaded with it, 
average American household with one credit card at one point in time a couple of years ago was almost $16,000. Um, some debt's good, some debt's bad. Borrowing for a home or college is good. It usually makes sense. Now, I'm not again, this is where we can kind of get into some, did you really just say that? Um, there's a lot of people out there now that are saying, you know, you know, four years of college is too much. You're spending too much. You know, um, your resume will show that you graduated for sure. But if you don't have the skills for the, the career, then you're, you're in trouble. So I think it's kind of imperative of parents to really make their sure that is make sure their kids good and mature before they go off and you know rack up a lot of college debt. Have some sort of thought about what they want to do with their life, and not just stumble upon a poetry major. Not saying poetry is bad. I'm just saying that the careers tied towards poetry typically don't justify spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Keep in mind. One of the things that we talk about is you need to get to 10 to 20 times your income to retire in your nest egg. And if your kid's spending $60,000 a year on college at age 20, that 60 would become 120, it would become 240, it would become 480, it would become almost a million dollars by the time they retired at 60. So times that by four and you're, you got $4 million. So parents could say, okay, junior, you go earn you know, some money, but I'll, I'll invest all this money in, in your retirement. It's kind of a, a pretty good question. Can you earn more than $4 million in your lifetime? Most people can't. Um, again, think about it. If you're making $100,000 a year, that's a million every 10 years. That's $4 million over a 40-year career. Um, average job in America, so, you know, depending on the median or the average, um, forty-five to 55000 most. So some debt's good. Some debt's bad. Mortgage debt's great because it's low-cost money. It's tax favorable. Love it. Um, but credit card debt, and this is always crushes me. People that use the credit card to pay for things that they don't really need is a big problem. I had credit card debt in college. I got out, kind of got away from the whole credit thing for a while, and got back into it. Um, and now I have, I, have no, I have no credit card debt month to month. Sometimes I go a little crazy making sure, like, um, all my credit cards are online, and I have them contact me, you know, 10 days before a bill. And contact me anytime with a text message, anytime there's a bill over, you know, $200. So I use credit card debt wisely, and I've got the Fidelity American Express card that gives me 2% back on all my purchases. And I, it, after you hit, you know, basically $50 in, you know, kickbacks, it funds it automatically into your, uh, an account for you. And it could be any type of account at Fidelity. Um, and that's part of my savings plan. You know, with my spending, I could easily pull in $2,000, $2,500 a year in free money. Now, some people will use like a Southwest credit card and they'll be like, woohoo, I got a free flight. Then you have to pay for a hotel. Like sometimes these reward programs get you to spend money that you wouldn't normally have spent, and then is it really a reward? 
or is it just a you know perk that you're kind of misbehaving on? Um, I use Mint.com to review all my credit cards. Uh, look at your credit card purchases. Uh, there's a cool thing that Capital One recently introduced where it's location-based swipes. So it tells you where the merchant was that you bought from, and I think that's kind of cool. So the technology's catching up, but it's still kind of an old back system. Never ever pay just the minimum on a credit card. Uh, you'll barely cover the interest you owe, to say nothing of the principal. It'll take you years to pay off your balance. Uh, minimum payments are basically for losers or for people who aren't doing what they should be doing. Uh, watch where, where you borrow. Uh, a lot of people will take money out of their 401k. A lot of people will take money out of their home. But your home is not something to be... When I moved to the Bay Area in 2000, um, there was a bit, Marin was the BMW capital of the world. Not because people had the money to buy BMWs, but their house had depreciated, so they, they tapped in their house to buy it. And again, cars are depreciating an asset that is one of the worst things you could buy and put on debt. So... The idea of taking money out of your home to buy a car, a new car, that you just want, not that you need, but you want, it's really a flawed scenario. With debt, um, you have to expect the unexpected, so you need three to six months of emergency funds. Um, just in case there's a furnace that breaks or a damaged car, that emergency fund will help cover you know, your credit issues. Uh, to stop you from going into debt. Um, emergency funds are one of the most important things you can have as an investor, as someone who's trying to fund their own nest egg. That's the priority. So you have to expect the unexpected. Um, I don't pay down a mortgage ever. I find it to be good debt. Uh, mortgages tend to have the lowest interest rates. Uh, you can deduct the interest you pay on the first million of a mortgage loan. If your mortgage is a high rate and you want to lower your monthly payments, consider refinancing. Um, absolutely. You know, debt comes in more, many shapes, forms, and sizes. Like I said, there's good debt and there's bad debt. It's almost impossible to live debt-free. I don't want to. I think poor people should live debt-free, and I think rich people should live debt-free. For rich people, it's an inconvenience. For poor people, or lower-income people, however you want to say, you know, how we're defining this, uh, you should live debt-free because debt's expensive. And if you're low-income and you can't pay your debt, then... You know, you're not going to get a home loan for 4%. You're going to get a home loan for 8%. You're not going to get a credit card for 2%. You're going to get a credit card for 28%. And it should almost be criminal, but it's not. So it's so easy to spend what you can't afford, especially when you use a credit card. I, the person who cuts my hair, kind of funny, she does one of those credit card processing through her phone, Square. And I looked at the fees on that, about 2.5%, a little bit higher, 2.7. So out of every $100 that a customer gives her and pays on credit, she loses $2.70 to the swipe fees. And Amazon Local Register has the same exact technology and same exact transaction processing, but they'll do it for 1.5. I was like, you should switch. She's like, well, I'm kind of comfortable with what I got. They give me a lot of good data and feedback and I'm like, you're losing for every single time you swipe, you know, a buck twenty because you're comfortable out of every $100. And she's a high-volume person. Um, 
and then we got it talking about like, oh, and by the way, you should use this credit card, the Fidelity one, because she's got three kids. She's kind of a single mom who's living with another single dad who's got a kid. And she's like, oh, no, I don't use credit. Um, don't use credit. I use debit. I'm like, you're crazy. Just pay it off every month and you get the perks. Um, and she's like, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm against credit. I'm like, again, there's some right ways to use it. There's some bad ways to use it. A home and paying for college and using the reward systems to your advantage, as long as you pay it off every month, I'm okay with. Problem is, most people don't pay it off every month. So understand there's good debt and there's bad debt. A car, I always say, you know, I have no problem with a car payment. I understand it. I understand that some people want a forty dollars to $60,000 car and they'll finance it. Well, my advice is get a used car, two years used, anything more and you might be inheriting some problems, anything less and has it depreciated enough for you. Um, I find it sexy when I hear people buying a used car. Unfortunately, we have a stigma. I want the new car smell. Um, and even when you're buying a used car, two years used, it's, it's expensive, but I don't want you to hit in the emergency fund. I want you building it into your budget, and I want you to buy the right vehicle for you. Um, you know, I've said when I turn 50, I'll buy a new car. It'll be my first new car in many, 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 many years. And it'll be a Tesla. And it'll be a total gift for myself. And I'm giving myself years to save for it. I'm giving myself years to build it into my budget. And I'm driving a car that I haven't had a car payment on in six years, maybe longer. Anyhow, uh, talking a little debt, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black. doing a back-to-school special. I always enjoy those back-to-school specials or after-school specials or very special shows. I'm going to try to do more of them where it's a unique topic for a day. Today, doing a back-to-school, talking about borrowing to pay debts, um, home equity line of credit. It's okay in some instances to handle personal debt, but generally speaking, I'd prefer that you don't go out and buy furniture with a home equity line of credit or appliances. Uh, they don't add to your val home value, and they're depreciating assets. Uh, retail stores often charge high interest rates on these things. So when you borrow money for home improvements or home items, uh, try to do it <laughs> as cheaply as you can. Read the deals. 
Uh, one thing that I won't do also is with debt is, you know when you go into a store and they offer the store credit card? Uh, part of your credit score is, is factored in to how long have you owned this card. So if you go in and get a Macy's card and today you get 10% off, you just open up a new card and the average age of your credit cards just went down. Um, and then you're going to potentially go buy a home next year. You just messed up. Um, the advantages of a home equity line of credit staying with that topic course in another second or two, they typically charge interest rates that are less than half what credit cards charge. Plus, the interest you pay may be deductible. May. There's one potential and very significant drawback when you borrow against your house to pay off credit cards. If you default on your home equity loan payments, you lose your home. And again, if you've gotten to the point where you have to borrow money from your home to pay your credit card, you're in trouble. You've done something wrong. Um, just throwing that out there. Again, you know, debt is important. I do think you will want to check your credit reports on RACIS to see your credit reports kind of help you understand your debt. And I do this, not quarterly, but every four months I go out and pull a credit report and I set a reminder to pull it in four more months. Um, there's a good website, annualcreditreport.com, and you can choose when you're there, you get a free annual credit report once a year from either Experian, Equifax, or TransUnion. So I spread it out between the three. I spread it out between the three over those four months of the year. Um, each of them collect information on your credit history. A credit score is derived from that. That score is a quick way for lenders to assess how risky you are as a potential borrower. The higher your score, the less risk you pose to lenders. The score is commonly referred to as a FICO score, which was a system developed by Fair Isaac. Um, but if you check out annualcreditreport.com, you can start seeing some of these things. Um, on top of that, it will tell you if you've been turned down for credit. It will, you know, show you your employment history, your housing history. Um, so it tells you a lot. And for instance, I missed a mortgage payment probably, I want to say, eight or nine years ago. And I was using a mortgage company that they didn't have online payments, which I hate because I hate stamps. I hate thinking, okay, end of the month, I got to write my mortgage. I got to stay on top of this piece of mail. I hate mail now. Mail to me is just archaic. It's a horrible, horrible system. I know people like to get mail. I know it makes you feel good, but it's, you get where I'm going at with this. So anyway, I, I think I sent in my payment. I got a notice that, you know, I didn't, and I missed my payment. Um, and it's on my credit report. And it's a pretty easy thing to, to explain. When I went to get a mortgage, I said, okay, well, I missed a mortgage payment because this is what happened. I sent it in, I checked with them. They said they didn't get it. I tried to send it in as soon as I could. And uh, this is what happened. And ultimately, I'm not going to say all was forgiven, but always kind of forgiven because it did make sense. The story kind of panned out. It took a letter, but it did pan out. So part of the segment lesson is called controlling your personal debt, controlling. You always want to control your debt while accomplishing your financial goals, and you want to make your debt work for you. Think of a mortgage debt as you're paying yourself rent, and that works over time. Um, think of college debt as you're paying 
for a career income. And that works out over time. Credit card's not good. It's way too easy to get in credit card issues. Uh, I've done it. Uh, I got to the point in college where I had so much credit card debt, I think it was like $6,000, but by the time I started paying them back, it was almost $10,000. And I had to borrow money from my parents, and I said, I'll I'll pay you back rather than pay the bank back, and I did. And it was embarrassing and humiliating, but being straddled with debt is a bad thing. Parents, I recommend a secure credit card for your kid when they turn 18, uh, maybe 16. You fund it with $500 and it's got a $500 limit. You could put in alerts that alerts you when spitting has hit X amount of dollars. You could put in email alerts that alerts you when you know the big ticket purchases happen. You do it in real time with text messages. Um, but a secure credit card lets your kid start developing credit. Because part of a credit score is age of credit lines, you know. How long have you got that credit line been open? How long has the bank's been open? Are you, when you go to borrow money, do you want to look like you, yeah, I've used seven banks in six years, and that's not going to look good. That's going to say, like, this person's a little unstable. So a secure credit card, and there's a great website called bankrate.com, bankrate.com. And bankrate.com has one more thing that you can shop for. Like, if you want a no annual fee credit card or an annual fee that gives you better perks, um, I get it. So uh, bankrate.com, you could shop for the card that you are most likely to use or the one that you're looking for. Um, again, last time I'll say it, secure credit card for teenagers I think makes a lot of sense, and it actually helps their future. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.